I uh, apologize for the sporadic nature of our study in 1 John. Uh, it just seems like a whole bunch of stuff has been coming up. Uh, you know, then we went to Israel for a couple weeks, and I came home and got sick for three weeks, and then we had uh, the holiday. We took a, a break, and so uh, we are in John, First John chapter. In fact, let's just start over. Just turn to chapter one, verse one. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but you know, I could. Uh, it's not unlike me to go and just start over, but. Uh, I, I'm not going to try to review even because you've been following this, I know. Uh, let's pick it up, though, for tonight's study in 1 John 4, and we'll just back up to verse 7 as we kind of get a running start in tonight's study, where John said, Beloved, let us love one another for love, and again, he's talking about God's love, agape love, is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love, excuse me, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Now, guys, as we have pointed out numerous times in our study in 1 John, the key concept that John keeps driving home, you see it all the way through this epistle, is that God is love, and those who truly know Him abide in His love. In fact, John uses the word abide over and over again, but he's coming now to the climax of all he has wanted to say to us, he, he begins to, to repeat it even more. In fact, in verses 12 to 16, in those five verses, he uses the Greek word meno, translated abide, six times. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, that important little word abide refers to our personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. To abide in Christ means to remain in spiritual oneness with him so that no sin comes between us. Because we are born of God, we have union with Christ. But it is, it is only as we trust Him and obey His commandments that we have communion with Him. Much as a faithful husband and wife abide in love, though they may, though they may be separated by miles, so a believer abides in God's love. This abiding is made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which John mentions in verse 13. And so again, guys, the thought that John keeps coming back to is that only the true children of God have his nature in them. The nature of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit, again, verse 13. Now we know that the Holy Spirit is in us. We know that we have truly passed from death to life, that we are born again, because the Spirit of God is in us. God doesn't give his spirit to unbelievers, all right? But how do we know the invisible God is now in us? Well, by what manifests itself through our lives. When the Spirit is planted in our hearts, I think Peter said it uh, in um, uh, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, I believe it was, or 1, verse 4, that when we accepted Christ, we became partakers of God's nature. Now, of course, 
we didn't necessarily feel God move in, the Holy Spirit move in when we accepted Christ. Some people have dramatic experiences, but not everybody. In fact, most don't. So how do we know that God has actually moved in? Well, one of the things that happened in my life almost immediately was I began to change in the way I thought about things, um, in the way I perceived uh, sin. Uh, I used to think it wasn't sin, it was just having fun. But right away I began to realize, no, God doesn't want me to do that anymore. He doesn't want me to live that way. There were, there were things that almost instantly began to pop up that indicated something had happened inside of me, that God the Holy Spirit had moved in. And of course, then as you abide in the Lord and walk with Him, the fruit of the Spirit starts to grow through your life. You know, the love, the peace, the joy, the long-suffering, all that John has been talking about in this epistle uh, that comes from the nature of God within us, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And John wants us to know that the world, and this is going back to verse 12, that the world has never seen God in all of His fullness. Now, certainly at one point God became man in the person of Christ, and the disciples and those at the, living at that time got to see the man Jesus, the God-man. But that wasn't God in all of His fullness. In fact, the Bible says that the glory of God was veiled by Jesus' humanity, by His flesh. On the Mount of Transfiguration, as He went up to the top of the mount there, He uh, kind of turned inside out, you might say. Or he began to radiate like the sun. But the point John is making is that, look, God is invisible. God is spirit. The world has never seen God in all of his fullness. And the only way they can see God is by the love of God in us that we demonstrate. Because God is in us. How we live in the world. How we allow the spirit to live his life through us and bear the fruit of the spirit. The first on the list is agape love. This is how the world sees God. This is how the world knows that we are of God, because our lives are transformed. And so that's uh, what John has been kind of driving home, and uh, how his desire is that we would lo love each other. That's true, uh, first and foremost. That's what the love of God should be doing in the lives of his people. But then also, we are called to be lights in the world. We are called to go into all the world and manifest the character of God to this world so that people know he's real by looking at us and how God's worked in our lives, how he's transformed us, right? Look, John is saying, and he's been saying this throughout this epistle, anyone claiming to know Jesus, to be saved, and yet that person doesn't abide in God's love by demonstrating it to those around them, well, at very least, uh, he or she is out of fellowship with the Lord. In other words, they're backslidden. That can happen. But at worst, it could mean that this person isn't a child of God at all. Churchgoer, yeah. Uh, a child of God, no. Now, throughout the course of his epistle, John wants us to know that agape love isn't words only, it's actions. Now, we talked about this back in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, where John brings it up. He says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God, how does agape love abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John wants us to know that words and actions are inseparably linked together when it comes to defining God's love. Sure, we need to talk about God's love and tell people how much God loves them, but that's not enough. We must demonstrate God's love for them if they're going to really see that we're different, that we really believe this to the point where we're living it ourselves. And so John makes it a point to say that not only did God tell us he loved us, but he demonstrated that love by sending his son to die for us on Calvary's cross. Romans 5, 8 is one of my favorites on this topic. Uh, that God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This, he says, is the kind of love that we must show the people of this world, especially other Christians. What? What, what should we show them? God's love. What does that mean? Sacrificial love. Sacrifice, right? Sacrificial love 
God's love combines words and actions. And in 1 John 3.16, we read, By this we know love. By, by this we know somebody is demonstrating God's love. Because Jesus laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Sacrificial love, okay? Agape love. One author rightly said, The world will not believe that God loves sinners until they see his love at work in his children's lives. And then he went on to share this true story. He said, A Salvation Army worker found a derelict woman alone on the street and invited her to come into the chapel for help, but the woman refused to move. The worker assured her, We love you and want to help you. God loves you. Jesus died for you. But the woman did not budge. As if on divine impulse, the Salvation Army lassie <laughs> leaned over and kissed the woman on the cheek, taking her into her arms. The woman began to sob, and like a child was led into the chapel where she ultimately trusted in Christ. You told me that God loved me, she later said, but it wasn't until you showed me that God loved me, uh, excuse me, but it wasn't until you showed me that God loved me that I wanted to be saved. The author went on to say Jesus did not simply preach the love of God, he proved it by giving his life on the cross. He expects his followers to do likewise. If we abide in Christ, we will abide in his love. If we abide in his love, we must share this love with others. Whenever we share this love, it is proof in our own hearts that we are abiding in Christ. In other words, there is no separation between a Christian's inner life and his outer life, end quote. And so in verse 15, we read, John says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, be careful here, okay? Any unbeliever, including the devil and his demons, can mouth the words, Jesus is the Son of God, and still not be saved. Years ago, we had a couple coming to the church who had been involved in, a, in the Word of Faith movement, had gone to a Word of Faith church for many years. And one of their favorite Word of Faith preachers used to end his TV and radio shows with the words, Jesus is Lord. It always he'd end with uh, those words, Jesus is Lord. However, based on the overall doctrine that he taught, I accused him of being a false teacher. Well, they took me to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 to prove, quote-unquote, that he was a genuine man of God and couldn't say Jesus was Lord unless he was saved and spirit-filled. And so they took me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 and read to me these words from Paul, Therefore I make known to you that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, that proves it. He's a man of God. He couldn't say those words if he wasn't talking from the Spirit. And I said, look, anybody can mouth the words, Jesus is Lord. What Paul is talking about is somebody who can say that and mean it because they've committed their lives to Christ. They have surrendered control to him. He is their Lord because they're born of the Spirit and have been transformed by the power of God. Any unbeliever, any demon from hell can say Jesus is Lord. That doesn't mean anything. It's what's going on in the heart. Is it being spoken from a, from a heart that has been changed and a life that is being transformed, right? Very important. And, and guys, that's basically what John is talking about here in chapter 4, verse 15, all right? I mean, he was dealing with a lot of heresy in his day. And there are a lot of people that were calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, throwing his name around as a title, uh, excuse me, as a name, not a title, all right? And a lot of these folks were spreading heresy. And so John was coming against that. He wanted people to understand, look, you know, nobody can really say Jesus is the Son of God, because there's a lot of people denying that he was even the Son of God. But uh, John says, nobody can really say that from the heart unless the Spirit of God is in them. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides, in the Greek word there means to remain, continue, in God's love, abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. As we have said many times in our studies in the New Testament, Satan can't rob you of your salvation. Now, there are pastors who would disagree with me on that. I'm a firm believer in once saved, always saved. For me, the issue is not can you lose your salvation. The issue is did you ever really have it in the first place? And so in our studies in the New Testament, we have pointed out numerous times that Satan can't rob you as a Christian of your salvation. But through legalism, he can rob you of the assurance of your salvation. And if you allow this to happen, if you fall into that legalistic mindset, if a person attends a legalistic church where they're always pounding in works, works, holiness, living a holy life is how they define it, and uh, where, where people are constantly feeling like they're losing their salvation every week and have to come forward uh, on Sunday and <clears throat> receive Christ all over again and, and get saved all over again. I disagree with that. I don't see that as being biblical. But um, those that have bought into that theology, it produces in, in them a tremendous, and I'm talking about Christians now, it produces in them a tremendous amount of fear and torment. Now, John is basically coming against this idea right here, all right? But again, so that you understand where he's coming from. If the devil can't keep you from getting saved, the next best thing is to rob you of the assurance of your salvation because you'll never live like a victorious Christian if you don't think you are a Christian from day to day or week to week. In verse 18, he said, There is no fear... In love, And remember, when he talks about love, he's talking about God's love. The, the love of God that only comes to us when we receive Christ and are born again. Romans 5, verse 5, at the moment you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit moved in and poured God's agape love into you, into me. And now we have access to it. Now we can demonstrate it to the people we come in contact with. We don't have to. Many Christians don't, unfortunately. But the goal of Christianity is to be like Christ. And Jesus was all about love, sacrificial love, which he demonstrated ultimately by going to the cross. Okay? But here, John said, there is no fear in love, in God's love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now, guys, it's true that John could have in mind people who consider themselves Christians, but who demonstrate that they don't have true saving faith because they constantly live in fear and torment of going to hell, because they're unworthy, because they're not good enough to get to heaven. And you try to show them the scriptures that promise them it's by faith, not by your works. That salvation comes not because you earn it. You get to heaven not because you're worthy, but simply by receiving Christ. And you show them passage after passage, yet they still can't, they still can't get their mind around it. They still live in fear and torment because they're not good enough. They're not worthy. You know what that says to me? It says to me that they don't have saving faith. Now, I know. A young Christian in Christ could wrestle with doubts and things, and, and but they're going to grow, right? The Holy Spirit's inside of them. If they're truly born again, they're going to come to church. They're going to talk to Christians. They're going to hear the Word being taught. And as soon as God begins to show them from the Word what He has said about their salvation, that it's not due to their goodness or works at all. It's all, it's all God, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, lest any should boast, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. There's a lot of verses like that in the New Testament that assure us that it's, we don't get to heaven by doing works, going to church, lighting candles, 
praying rosaries, doing all kinds of other good works. We get to heaven because we believe in Christ. But if a person just can't fathom that, they just can't embrace that, and they're always living in fear and torment because I'm going, I know I'm going to hell. I'm not worthy. i got to go to church more. i got to light more candles. Well, to me, that just says that they don't know the Lord. They're, they don't have saving faith. So John could be thinking of these people. He might have had those in mind when he said these words. I think rather it could be that John has in mind true Christians that lack maturity in their faith and walk with God the kind of maturity that comes from understanding the promises of God and His Word, about eternal security, the uh, the eternal security of their salvation, and the nature of God's unconditional love for them in Christ. Again, we're talking about young believers then, not people that have been saved for years. But I, as I just said, if a person's new in the faith, they haven't had time to get grounded in the Word. They don't really understand the promises of God yet. They don't understand the, the nature of God's love, that it's unconditional, and it's, it's found in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you have access to God's unconditional love for you. And because you're in Christ, your salvation is absolutely secure because you've been sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So young believers, you know, they, they don't haven't had time to really grow in this area. So they're still immature. And I think that John primarily has them in mind when he says these words. And, and, and of course, Satan jumps on these folks. That's why it's so important for us who are older in the Lord. Big brothers and sisters, take under our wings the new believers, the ones who are babes in Christ still, because they're very susceptible to Satan's lies and attacks they're very susceptible to uh, the devil getting a hold of them and sowing all this condemnation in the hopes that you know he can get them to do something crazy hurt themselves in some way fall away from the faith because they just can't measure up to the standard god has for me i just can't get there still thinking that they have to do it themselves in their own strength right That's why it's important that we who are older in the Lord look out for those who are younger. And we take them aside and we show them from the word what God has said. Alleviate their fears. Cause them to be rooted in the promises of God. And I say that because there have been more than a few Christians that have committed suicide because of fear and torment rooted in feelings of guilt and condemnation because they were not, listen, perfected in their walk. You know, it's been six months and I'm still wrestling with this or that sin. Oh, I can't be saved because my walk is so imperfect, right? And so after a while, the devil just so pours the condemnation on them that they can't live with the guilt anymore of not measuring up, of letting God down. That's a big one, right? I just can't stand letting God down anymore. Well, don't you think God knew everything you were going to do, every sin you were going to commit before you accepted Christ? In fact, before the foundation of the world, he knew you and me. He knew every sin we were ever going to commit. And he still wrote our names in the book of life based on the fact that he knew when the gospel was preached to us, eventually we would receive Christ. He knew exactly what he was getting himself into. Okay, And, and, and our sin doesn't surprise God. It grieves him, but it doesn't surprise him. And because he loves us with an unconditional love, well, when we blow it, he, he doesn't disown us or um, it's not like we've let, like we've disappointed him. The word disappoint comes from the idea of God appointing you. In other words, God, you know, thought you and I were going to, live up here and we didn't live up at that level so we've disappointed god no we can't disappoint god he knows exactly what we were going to do all the sins we were going to commit and uh very but you see this is what john is talking about this is what he's referring to and um 
He said, and we've talked about 1 John 3, 18 to 20. Because I think this is some of the most important verses on this topic in the New Testament. He said, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. In other words, if we're demonstrating God's love, not just by our words, but by our actions, uh, living sacrificially, helping others, especially believers in need. If we're going around demonstrating that kind of love, John says, then we know that we are of the truth in our hearts uh, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. There are times when we're going to blow it and we're not going to, you know, we're going to do something that we feel, wow, I can't believe I did that. Peter, right? Peter was so convinced he would never deny his Lord. Even after the Lord Jesus warned his disciples that they were all going to forsake him before the night was out, right? The night before the cross. And before the night was out, before Jesus would stand before Pilate, all of his disciples would forsake him. Peter said, I will never forsake you, Lord. Peter, before the cock crows twice, you're going to de deny me three times. I would die before I would ever deny you. Well, he did deny the Lord. And I'm sure Peter, for those three days, thought his life with the Lord was over. Um, the Lord can never forgive him. How can I ever face him? How can I ever think he would ever want to use me again in ministry? And he was devastated because Peter had a good heart. The, the moral to that story is don't make God promises from your flesh. Don't make God promises, you know, um, that we are sincere about, but our flesh cannot come through on. Better to say, Lord, I want to do this, but I'm weak. Jesus said that earlier in the evening. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let's not put any confidence in the flesh. Let's see it for what it is, right? And, uh, and bring our hearts before the Lord and say, Lord, I love you and I want to live for you, but I'm not going to make you promises I know I can't keep. That's just trying to use the flesh to conquer the flesh. That doesn't work. But sometimes our heart condemns us. Of course, in the rest of the stories, when Jesus rose from the dead that Sunday morning, the first person he sought out was Peter to restore him. Because he loved Peter. And he didn't tell Peter in advance you were going to deny me three times just to crush him. He told him that to prepare him so that when he did finally deny the Lord, it didn't, it didn't rock Peter the same way it would have if the Lord had not prepared him for his failure. But sometimes our hearts will condemn us because we've blown it. And John wants you to know that God is bigger than your heart and my heart. He knows we love Him. He knows we're weak. And we're going to blow it at times. And when we blow it, confess your sin. Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. And just draw close to Him. Because that's the only way we're going to have victory. Guys, this is the very issue John is addressing here. The key word or words he uses is perfected, and perfect. You see them kind of sprinkled throughout the passage. Again, verse 17. Love, he said, God's love, has been perfected among us. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, and that's the love of God in Christ is the idea. But perfect love casts out fear. Now listen to me, guys. Perfect or perfected love is the love of God in a person's life that has accomplished the perfect will of God for that person's life. What is the perfect will of God? Well, to save them and make them as perfect as Jesus in his eyes. All right? Verse 17 again, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, you might pass over those words quickly, uh, without really meditating on what John is saying. He's saying an awful lot, 
And it gets into the whole idea of how that um, once we're in the love of God, we're secure. Um, the devil really can't, well, he can condemn us, but the devil can't hurt us. Um, our salvation is secure. Look, uh, let's turn to these. Romans 8. I just want to show you, I'll give you three passages, but Romans 8. Now, we've all memorized verse 28, right? Romans 8, 28, I think every Christian who is in the Word at all has memorized Romans 8, 28. And we, all know, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, right? Amen? We often don't read verse 29 or memorize that, because really that is what Paul goes on to say is God's perfect will for our lives, right? His purpose. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The whole purpose in God saving us was to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now that's called sanctification. And that happens over the course of your entire Christian life here on the earth, right? But the idea is that salvation is the miracle of a moment, as somebody has said. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, didn't take him very long to deliver his people out of Egypt, right? Uh, I don't know, a few days. It took many, many years to deliver Egypt out of them. The same is true with us. Salvation is the miracle of a moment. You receive Christ, you're born again. Making you into the image of Jesus on a practical level, that is the work of the Holy Spirit according to the rest of your life, okay? I mean, that, that's the work of God begins. You know, salvation is not where God's work ends, it's where it begins, that's when God puts up that construction sign uh, in front of you that says work in progress, okay? And we are all a work in progress. The good news is Philippians 1.6, he's going to complete the work he began in each one of us. And the day he completes it will be the day we are raptured, where we will receive our new glorified bodies and are made as perfect outwardly as we have been made perfect inwardly. Until that time, we are a work in progress. But I want you to understand that God saved us to transform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. However, the instant you received Christ, you were placed in Christ. And God no longer sees you and me. He sees Jesus. So in that regard, positionally, we are perfect, blameless, holy, sinless. Even though practically, we're none of that stuff. And we're growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Jude 1. Actually, there's a trick thing. There's only one chapter, so it's just Jude. My Bible program has to put the chapter. So I look at it and go Jude one twenty four, but it's just Jude, verse 24. Listen to what Jude said. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you how? Faultless. How could you go to hell if once you're saved, your sins have all been paid for? God has written across your ledger all the sins you ever have committed, will commit. He writes paid in full through the blood of Christ. And now you are faultless, blameless, sinless, perfect. Uh, Hebrews 10, 14 he is perfect. He is um, uh, perfected forever. Those who are being sanctified. There's the practical, positional, and practical in the same verse. You are perfect in Christ positionally from the instant you receive Him as Lord and Savior. But now you are being sanctified. Okay. But Jude tells us that God is going to present us faultless. So, however long it was before. From when you got saved to you stand before the Lord. Maybe 
you got saved uh, 50 years ago. Or maybe you got saved, you know, 50 days ago. But however long your life on the earth is after you've received Christ, know this, when it's all said and done, you're faultless. You're, you're not faultless up until the moment now you've accepted Christ, and now after that he's going to keep a record of all your sins and wrongdoings. They've all been put under the blood of Christ. Jesus has atoned for all of them. We are faultless in his eyes. We are going to be presented faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. How can you go to hell if there's no sin on your ledger? If it's all been washed away and as God sees you, you are faultless, sinless, perfect. How can you lose your salvation? How could you go to hell? But there are people who believe that. Now, of course, John 3.16, I want to look at for a second. You know, most of you here have memorized that, but John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell but have everlasting life. Now listen to me. Here's the problem. Love presented is not automatically love perfected. What do I mean? When God sent his son to die on Calvary's cross, remember how he commissioned his church to go into all the world and present God's love through the gospel, that God loves you, Jesus died for you, and you don't have to go to hell because your sins have been paid for. We present God's love to the people we share the gospel with. And we're to go into all the world and preach the good news to every person. So everybody is being invited to come to heaven. But here's the thing. God's love presented is not automatically God's love perfected. It's only those who receive God's love, who embrace the gospel, who receive Christ, only they are going to be perfected by God's love. In other words, just because God loves all the people of this world and has offered them a way by which they might escape coming judgment in hell doesn't automatically mean that all people will be saved. Of course, we know that. Perfect or perfected love, listen, is the love of God in a person's life that has reached its perfect conclusion. What is the perfect conclusion of God's love? Presented, we receive it, embrace it, and God then perfects us. God's plan is to not just present his love to the world through the gospel, but to see people receive it and then have that love perfect them. What does that mean? Save them and make them into the image of Jesus Christ for all eternity. This is why when we understand the eternal, unconditional nature of God's love for us as his children, we never need to fear coming judgment. And this is what John is talking about. Let me just back up or have you turn to John 5, verse 24. And I want you to turn to these tonight. We have a little time. And uh, it's, it's so powerful to see it for yourself in the Word than just to have me read it to you. But something about looking at it in, in, right there in front of you. But what John is talking about is when we understand the eternal, unconditional nature of God's love for us as His children, we need never fear coming judgment. John, Gospel of John 5, verse 24 Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come in to judgment, but has passed from death into life. Shall never come in to judgment. We have been hidden in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And as such, we are as perfect, blameless, and holy as Jesus Christ himself. 
hard to fathom. Some, a lot of people, they have never really thought of it. They've never really read the word where they understand what the Bible is saying on this issue. Turn to Ephesians 1. I want to just back up to verse 3. Even though what I really want to get to is verses 13 and 14. But let's just start with verse 3, Ephesians 1. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose, and by, by the way, the theme of the book of Ephesians, two words, in Christ. And all that that really means, okay? And you see it right here. Mentions it over and over again. It's the theme for the entire book. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which, listen to this now, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. How do we get to heaven? Because we're worthy? We're good enough? No. Are you sinless? Are you perfect in yourself? Of course not. None of us are. Well, God only accepts sinless perfection into his kingdom. So how do fallen sinners get to go to heaven? Because we've received Christ, our sins are paid for, and we are placed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. We are accepted into heaven because we are in the beloved one. The Father loves the Son. The Son lived the perfect life. The Son lived the sinless life. And once we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are placed in Him by the Holy Spirit. God isn't accepting us into heaven. He's accepting Christ. We just happen to be members of His body. So we get to tag along. Verse 11. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. So somebody preached the gospel to you, and you accepted it. You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of what? Promise. When God saved you, when when you accept, when God preached the gospel to you through someone, and you received it, God made you a promise by giving you and I the Holy Spirit. But that promise was, you will never come into condemnation. That's a word that means judgment. You will never go to hell. You pass from death to life, and as such, you are now a child of the living God that will never change. That, that, will, that is secure, and the promise God is giving to you and I is that you, your sins have been forgiven. You have everlasting life, which by its very definition is life forever. You will one day receive an inheritance. Peter talks about it, that is undefiled, um, incorruptible, that will never fade away, reserved in heaven for us who are the children of God by faith. That's God's promise. But look, he goes on to say, verse 14, the Holy Spirit, right, given to us, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The word guarantee there is the Greek word arobon, arobon. And initially it was a word that meant a down payment. Like if you were to... Uh, Go house hunting. And you came across a house you really liked. You wanted that house. So you put a down payment on it. 
and then you run out and get the financing. But that down payment means you're in earnest. In fact, it was often called earnest money. You were in earnest. You weren't playing games. You were serious. You were going to come back and take full possession of this thing that you've put a down payment on. Paul says that's exactly what God did when he gave us the Holy Spirit. It was a little down payment, a guarantee that he was in earnest, that he was serious, that he wasn't just making promises he had no intentions of keeping. We know that's impossible for God to do anyways. It's impossible for him to lie. But by giving us the Holy Spirit, it was God's way of guaranteeing us that he's coming for us. He's going to take full possession of what he has bought and paid for at Calvary's cross. And when he does, he's going to give us a new body, a glorified body, a new place where we're going to live for eternity, heaven, in his presence. In fact, that Greek word, arobon, eventually began to be used for a man who was serious about marrying a gal so he gave her an engagement ring the word eventually morphed into that meaning also that when a man is in earnest about a woman when he intends to marry her he gives her an engagement ring which means he's serious and he's going to fulfill the promise he made to her that she will be his wife when god gave us the holy spirit at the moment of salvation it was a, an engagement ring. That's what the Greek word can mean. Where God, Jesus Christ, fully intends to come back. He's, he's preparing a place for us right now, right? If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll give it come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In my Father's house, right? That's what they did in those days. When a young man uh, proposed and was betrothed to a woman, uh, the first thing he did was go to his Father's house and begin to build them an apartment, a place to live. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, Jesus said. I go to prepare a place for you. And it was also called the uh, the bridal chamber uh, because his inheritance was at his Father's house. And that's why in those days, the Father had a house and all the sons, when they got married, they would build additions onto the Father's house. They would live right there uh, in the Father's because that's where their inheritance was. And so Jesus is preparing a place for us. He's going to come again to rapture us that we might be with him forever. Take us to the Father's house. We're going to live forever. He's in earnest. This is the, the Holy Spirit is the down payment, is the engagement ring that guarantees us that someday he's going to take full possession of the purchased possession, <laughs> purchased you and I at Calvary's cross, to the praise of his glory. 1 John 4.18 John says again, there is no, <clears throat> excuse me, there is no fear in love. And again, just to restate this important idea, there is no fear in God's perfect love in Christ by which you and I were sealed by the Spirit, secure until the day of redemption. He's coming back for us. He's going to take full possession of us. And again, guys, I think verse fourteen, uh, verse 18 is uh, more a statement of sanctification, spiritual growth and maturity, than it is of salvation, okay? The issue John is focusing on isn't how someone who is saved loses their salvation, but how a child of God loses the assurance of their salvation and allows fear, torment, in condemnation to take hold of their hearts. This happens more than you might realize. Um, a big part of that is because, again, you have churches and pastors who mean well. They think that the best way to get people to live a holy life is to threaten them with losing their salvation, beating them over the head with verses that uh, condemn them if they don't measure up every day. And that's a horrible way to live. They're, they're, that, perfect love casts out that kind of fear. Because it's not, it's, I'm not trying to earn God's love every day. He's poured his love upon me. It's unconditional, unlimited, never will never be revoked. Um, I'm secure in that love, you know, because I know when I blow it, he, he's not going to throw me out of the family. He's not going to disown me. But he will sometimes discipline me. He will correct me. But it's all intended to draw me closer to him so that next time I don't try to live for him in my own strength, right? 
But folks that don't have that assurance, that don't are not fed a steady diet of God's grace. It's all about works, legalism. They deal with a lot of fear, torment, condemnation on a daily basis. And of course, the way that happens is through legalism, or as John puts it, to put it in his terms, a Christian who doesn't understand the perfected, unconditional nature and eternal security of God's love for them once they become a child of God is susceptible to this very thing. Uh, turn to John 10. Through legalism, a person can be condemned, live with all kinds of fear and torment, all because they don't understand God's perfected, unconditional love for them, their eternal security, based on the fact that they are now in Christ. I love John 10, verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give to them what? Eternal life. Now, you know, I don't want to beat a dead camel. But you read that, and Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give to them life for a decade. How long would that be? Ten years, right? You wouldn't dispute that, right? Or I give them life for a century. How, how long would that be? Life for 100 years, right? What about if he said, I give them eternal life? How long is that for? Forever. Oh, unless I blow it. See, I don't see that there. You got a lot of folks that they, that they, they insert that. Oh, yeah, it's eternal unless I blow it. But I don't see that there. In fact, he goes on to say, and they shall never what? Perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. <laughs> my Father has given them, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. As I have said before, let me say it again. The Greek should be translated this way, and they shall never do anything to cause themselves to perish. It's reflexive in the Greek. They shall never perish. They shall never do anything to cause themselves to perish. Turn to Romans chapter 8. <laughs> because, you know, I just imagine Paul teaching this to people all over the known world in churches throughout the entire known world. And how many people did Paul come across that when he talked about God giving them eternal life in Christ, they would come back, yes, but I can still blow it. You know, one gentleman talking to a well-known pastor teacher, one gentleman said, well, because yeah, the preacher had said that Jesus, the Father, they have you in their hands. You can't be lost if the Father and Son have you securely in their hands. Oh, but I can slip through one of the fingers. Some people are bound and determined to talk their way out of eternal life. I, I don't know. You, you want the devil to con condemn you? Are you looking for that? Because you know, it's like they want to keep finding reasons why eternal life really isn't eternal. So I can slip through one of his fingers. And the teacher wisely said, you can't because you are one of his fingers. You're the body of Christ. But I just imagine Paul having dealt with this his whole Christian life. So in Romans 8, he, wants, he starts the chapter, one of the most important, most powerful chapters on the eternal security of the believer in all the New Testament. Chapter that starts with no condemnation, ends with no separation. And I just imagine Paul just trying to lump in everything he can think of that a person would come up with that they would say, I could lose my salvation because of this or that. Listen to what Paul said, okay? Ends with no separation. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor, nor uh, things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. Am I forgetting anything Paul is saying? Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Are you a created thing here tonight? Okay. 
nor any other created thing shall be able to listen, separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. He's talking about those who are saved. And in Christ. Once you're in Christ, you are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. You shall never come into condemnation. It's like Noah and his family sealed by God in the ark. There was no way they were getting unsealed. God closed the door. God sealed them in. They were absolutely secure through the storms, of, uh, to the uh, waters of the flood, the waters of judgment, until God opened the door and they came out to a brand new world. Look, not even you and I, as created things, can separate us from the love of God. Once we're in Christ, we are secure. We are always going to be his children. We, we will never lose that. He'll never disown us. And again, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so once again, back in 1 John 4, as we bring this to a close, verses 17 and 18, let me read it to you out of the uh, NLT 2nd edition. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Well, that's sanctification. Our understanding of God's love grows more perfect, His love for us, right? So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face Him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. We're like we're in Christ. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. In other words, either you're still very mature and immature in your faith and have not studied and understand what God has said in his word about your eternal security, or maybe you're going to church and you're not saved at all if you're constantly racked with fear and torment. And no matter how many times people show you the word of God and the promises of God, that you're going to go to heaven if you really accepted Christ, you can't get your mind around that. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Well, then maybe you're not saved. Because if the Holy Spirit is in you, if you're saved with saving faith, you might not understand all the truths of God initially, but as you study, you understand them. But if you continue day after day, week after week, year after year, constantly racked with fear and torment that you're not measuring up and you're going to not get to heaven, I think there's a good chance you might not be saved at all. 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. I love that. John is telling us that God is the initiator of salvation, not us, not fallen sinners. We didn't initiate salvation. He did. The only reason we love God and are saved is because he first loved us and put his plan of redemption into place by sending his son to the earth. Jesus, of course, eventually then died for our sins on Calvary's cross and reached out to us in love to come to him and be saved. And that caused us to love him. Once Jesus reached out to us and the good shepherd went looking for us and called our names and we responded, we accepted him and now we love him because he first loved us, and we love him by surrendering our lives to him to be used by him for his glory. Um, but again, Jesus is the good shepherd that goes out looking for lost sheep. In other words, he initiated the process. He found us, we didn't find him. And we've talked about this. I'll just read you a couple of scriptures. You don't have to turn to these. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 12, 32. And, if I, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. God does the drawing. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes out looking for lost sheep. It's, nobody can be saved unless God drew them to his son. Let's finish with verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Is that so true? You know, I love God, I just hate people. 
you know? I'm a Christian. I just hate everybody, but I, I'm a Christian, except the little circle of friends I have. Well, that's ridiculous. John says, you know, you, you, can't love, you can't love God whom you haven't seen if you can't love his people whom you have seen. Verse 21, in this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God, listen, must love his brother also. It's not voluntary, it's mandatory. Oh, but pastor, I just don't have that kind of love for a lot of people. I admit it. I want God's love. I just don't feel it in my life. I just, and I have a few people I just, I can't stand. Hey, you know what? Thank you for your honesty. Good, honest self-evaluation, self-examination is the first step to revival. It's not until we see our sins for what they are and confess our sins that revival starts to come. And you know what? It's honest to say to God, Lord, I don't love people the way I should. And I have a few people I can't stand. But your word says that it's not an option. I need to show people your love. Lord, will you work in me both to will and to do of your good pleasure? Will you revive my heart? Because right now my heart is kind of cold. I admit it. And um, will you revive me, Lord? And you keep praying that prayer with all your heart, and you're going to start moving from winter to spring to summer in your walk. You're going to be on fire eventually because your heart is sincere, and God wants to pour his love into you and I. He wants us to demonstrate his love to this world. He doesn't want us to be cold, aloof, you know, that kind of thing. Let me close with a, a, um, a quote from uh, one of the teachers I was reading, and he kind of sums up um, what John has been saying in this epistle. All right, I thought it would be a good place to, to close tonight. He said, and I quote, Love for God expresses itself not only in a confident attitude towards Him, devoid of fear, but in a loving concern for our brothers and sisters. Talks about that in chapter 3, verse 14. The perfect love that drives out fear drives out hatred also. If God's love for us is made complete when we love one another, 1 John 4, 12, so is our love for God. John does not mince his words. If how a person behaves contradicts what he says, he's a liar. To claim to know God and have fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness of disobedience is a lie. He's already talked about that. Chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 4. To claim to possess the Father while denying the deity of the Son, again, is to lie. Chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. The author is kind of tying up the entire epistle. To claim to love God while hating our brothers is also a lie. These are the three black lies of the letter, moral, doctrinal, and social. We may insist that we are Christians, but habitual sin, denial of Christ, or selfish hatred would expose us as liars. Only holiness, faith, and love can prove the truth of our claim to know, possess, and love God. It is easy to deceive ourselves. The truth, however, is plain. Every claim to love God is a delusion if it is not accompanied by unselfish and practical love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he talks about chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. So, John is presenting the ideal in this epistle. He's presenting the ideal. Now, we all know very often we fall short of living at the level of the ideal. The goal is not to live constantly at the level of the ordeal. Okay? The goal is to look at the ideal. Of course, what is the ultimate ideal that we're all shooting for as Christians? Jesus, right? Are we ever going to be fully like Christ in this life? No. I mean, are we all, all going to measure up perfectly to the perfect ideal standards John is laying out in his epistle? Probably not. But if you don't have something to shoot for, as the old saying goes, if you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it. So there's, it's always important to have a goal. Here's the goal. 
that I love God so much that his love overflows me and begins to spill over onto all the people I come in contact with, that I never deny Jesus, that I understand who he is, what he did, that I walk in that truth, so on and so forth, right? Love the brethren especially, not by words only, but by acts of sacrificial kindness. It's a great epistle to read, study, and go, well, Lord, I certainly don't measure up to this. There's a lot of areas in this epistle I fall way short. And God is, would say to us, I know. This is what I want you to aim for. By my grace, each day, as I conform you more and more into the image of my Son, this is the standard. This is the goal. And by God's grace, hopefully, each day we'll get a little closer to living this way. Because it is truly the will of God for our lives. Father, we thank you for giving us, Lord, this epistle. In many ways, it's very convicting, and that's good. Because until we're perfect, we should be convicted in areas we're falling short um, in. So, Lord, give us grace. I, I think, Father, the obvious thing to do is to keep drawing close to you every day, Lord. Lord Jesus, to abide in you, abide in your word, because that's where it all starts. And as we do, your spirit will fill us more and more. The fruit of the Spirit will grow more and more through our lives. Our light will shine brighter and brighter, and we will be a witness to this world. Um, and hopefully, by the love we show even our enemies, uh, well, many will get saved. So give us grace, Lord. We all need revival. And we ask you to pour your Spirit upon us and upon this church, that in the new year you do a new thing that goes beyond any of us, that you would receive all the glory. Father, we ask... All this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.